First John chapter three, these last couple of verses, um, what you're going to find out is this, this section of scripture is a very sobering section of scripture. Um, I, I want to approach this, um, really with, with as much clarity as Lord provides me to share with you, because this section of scripture we're going to look at today is really the foundation of Christianity. Clarity on this matters. And, um, and when people don't understand what is communicated in this section of scripture and how pertinent it is, uh, it's where you get a lot of false beliefs developing off of, of Christianity. And so uh, this section, I would say, for me, is sort of the most paramount theologically in understanding what First John uh, communicates to us in following after uh, Christ with our lives. And if you remember, what we focused on, especially over the last couple of weeks, is that in, starting in chapter 2 to chapter 4, this is the meat of what First John is about as followers of Jesus. He started off at First John chapter 1, and John recognizing in our lives that um, in the church there is a mixture of people, people that really belong to Jesus, people that might be seeking not belonging to Jesus, and people that really don't care about Jesus but just want to be in a community. And, and he, he really wants people to understand what it means to follow after God. And he talks about people that, go, uh, that are a part of us, but they go out from us, but they weren't really of us. And what he, John is thinking about in this story is how, how, how God is light, God is truth, uh, God wants you to be righteous and not lawless, and what it looks like to be a true follower of Jesus in, in light of all of that. And one day, all of us are going to meet God face to face. And when we meet him, John says it like this, that he wants you to be confident. And if you remember in the beginning of, of first John, what he talked about, he really laid out who he was and the authority that he carries. Remember John is the last living apostle as he writes this, all the other apostles have been martyred for their faith. And when John starts this letter, he reminds us that he has, he has seen Jesus, he has heard from Jesus, he has even touched Jesus. He, he has been a witness firsthand to everything that Christ has proclaimed. And he says to us that God is light, he is pure. And what he's about to do now is to summarize all of what it means to pursue Jesus with our lives. He summarizes Christianity in really two commands. These commands as followers of Christ uh, impact what you believe and, and how you behave. And, and in 1 John chapter 3, verse 22, the end of verse 22, this is how he picks it up. We keep his commands and do what pleases him, and this is his commandment. So John is saying, look, um, people think about different religious beliefs, and in his time, he's, he's, he's combating against Gnosticism, where these people are coming into the church, they're saying, look, you have this truth proclaimed to you, but there's this extra secret knowledge that you, that you need, and John's like, no, let's just, let's just cut to the chase here. In, in Christianity, there is this command that God wants you to follow, or these commands God wants you to follow, and here are the commands. And, and the first command is not about what you do, but the first command is about what's been done. How, what you believe, I should say it like this, what you believe will determine how you behave. And he's setting the precedent for not what you do, but what's been done. So look at this. This is the commandment. Here it is, that we believe in the name of the son, Jesus Christ. And then he says the second and love one another, just as he commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So John summarizes all of Christianity this way. It's not about what you do, but it's about what you trust. The basis of Christianity is not about what you do, 
but it's about what's been done by the grace of God for you. And so he, he, he makes this very clear in the very beginning by saying, we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Name has to do with identity of an individual. Today, we think about names. It's just what we ask the question, what did your mama give you? And then you say your name, right? But, but in, in Jesus's day, names represented identity. In fact, Christian practice co- was common to, to rename someone based on the spiritual gifts that they demonstrated in Jesus, you think one of, one of the Apostle Paul's companion, uh, uh, companions was Barnabas. He was, the, he was an encourager. I mean, who else is going to do ministry next to Paul who was known as a murderer other than one who thinks optimistically about what Jesus could do in his life, right? And so names in, in, in Jesus' day represented identity. Jesus' name isn't just like his mom said, you know, you look like a Jesus, we'll call you Jesus. But Jesus Christ represents the identity of who he was, the saving anointed one. That's what Jesus' is name means the saving king and Jesus pursues us so what are we trusting in this word believe in literally means to trust in to take anything that you've trusted in in life that you thought would was secure that your hope was resting in stop hoping in those things because they don't last and rather trust in what does endure and what we trust in is the in, in the identity of who Jesus is he is this rescuing king so so our salvation our security is based on what what this king has done for us, not what we do. Religion gives this idea that you climb this mountain to show to God that you are lovable. Rather, what Jesus said is in the midst of our sin, Jesus pursues us and Jesus comes after us and Jesus rescues us. And so John is saying, here's the basis of, of Christianity. It's not what you do. It's what's been done. And so the second commandment then is to love others. When we see the way that Jesus has pursued us, the way that Jesus loves us, we recognize that God cares about people and God wants to reach us right where we are. God loves your heart. God wants to transform that heart. And God is in pursuit of you. And when we see this king on this rescue mission to change our lives and we belong to that king, we begin to demonstrate that in our world. It tells us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, you have been bought with a price. That king came and he gave it all. And he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 20, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Meaning God doesn't just save you to leave you there, but now, now this king who's come to present this kingdom to you calls you a citizen of this kingdom and wants you to represent this king. And so you've been bought with a price. Glorify God with, with your body. And when you think about Christianity, I mean, we say it very simplistically here in this church. In, in, in Matthew chapter 28, nine, verse 19 and 20, the last statement Jesus gave to his disciples before he ascended, go into this world and make disciples. I mean, ABC, our desire is to see, see disciples made, to see people become fully devoted followers of Jesus so that you can become fully devoted leaders for Jesus. You want to be a good leader, be a good follower. And so when you think about what Christianity is about, the representation is this, coming to know God. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter three, I count it all as rubbish for one pursuit that I may know him. Paul abandons all of his religious pursuit in life for one simple cause, to know Jesus, to know him, and then in knowing him to make him known. And so when we talk about what Christianity is, we can really summarize it this simplistically. 
to, to trust in Christ with your life as this king has given you his. And then to love others through this king and his kingdom because this king loves you. And some people have looked at this and think, you know, that, that's, that's just, is it, can it really be that simple? But rather, the truth is, is that God's grace is that sufficient. There's nothing that you can add to what Jesus has already done because Jesus has paid it all. And some people in the simplicity of what that is have determined that they wanted to, to pervert the message of, of what the gospel is. When you use the word gospel, I think it's important for us to understand that the gospel, the word gospel literally means a proclamation. And it's a proclamation of victory saying there's really nothing that you can add to it because the king has already come and conquered and won. And so some will look at the Christian message and you can see this beginning early in the New Testament and they doubt rather in the sufficiency of what Christ has done for them and they feel like they need to add to the message of what the gospel is and in doing so it's no longer a, it's no longer a good news it's no longer the gospel because they they begin to pervert it and they add man's works on top of it. And so John being aware of this begins to address this idea uh, some of us, even, even when you study the Apostle Paul, when he, when he went around early in the church and began to pro- proclaim the gospel, it tells us early on in his ministry, the Jews would follow him around and they would say, look, that's good that you have this message of Jesus, but really you need to add the Old Testament law to it. And that's the reason I think in, in your Bible, you have a lot of uh, what the book of Romans is and, and the book of Galatians. If you just study the first three chapters of Romans, you'll see that the thing that Paul is primarily addressing is the law and how it relates to us today. And people will look at the Old Testament law and say, uh, do, do we have to live this? Why do we not obey the 613 commandments uh, of the Old Testament law? And uh, why is Jesus alone sufficient? And that's a good question, right? Um, <clears throat> the Old Testament law, when you think about it, the Old Testament law it, in, in itself, it's holy. God gave us the Old Testament law and it represents his nature. It's, it, 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 therefore, it's holy. But when you think about categorically how we even refer to the, the sections of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, there, even, even in that representation, there is a distinction worthy of talking about. Why do we talk about one part of the Bible being Old Testament and one part of the Bible being New Testament? The idea of testament can also be translated covenant. So we're, what we're really saying is old covenant and new covenant. Now you can't have a new covenant until the old covenant is fulfilled. And so what we're talking about and even acknowledging that the Old Testament is Old Covenant, New Testament is New Covenant, is something has taken place in between these two covenants to fulfill them. And what is the Old Covenant? Well, it's the Old Testament law, the 613 commandments. And who fulfilled the Old Covenant? Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. Jesus came to fulfill it. And when you study the purpose of the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant, Old Testament, the law that God established, the purpose of the Old Covenant law wasn't to save you, it wasn't to free you. And so to look at Jesus and say he's not sufficient, we need to add laws to this to find ourselves to, uh, to, to be approved before God, is to apply something to us that wasn't even intended to ever free us. 
In, in fact, when you look in books like Romans and Galatians, which is told you Paul, Paul laid out because uh, of the conflict of seeing Jews try to tell Christians that you need to insert law into your living or, or some Jews even believing they need to hold to the Old Testament law. Look at some of the things Paul said here. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Look at this. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable before God. For by the works of the law, human being, no human being will be justified in his sight. Meaning looks right to God. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And look what he says about the law in Romans 4.15. For the law brings wrath. So what Paul is saying is the law doesn't free you. The only thing religious law does is condemn you. What religion does will tell you when you fail. Law does that. When you leave here and you get pulled over for going too fast, like cops pull you over not to tell you great at obeying the law, but they tell you when you break the law. Laws work to tell you when they break, when you break them. They don't free you, they condemn you. To apply any law to what Jesus says is one, to say Jesus is insufficient, and two, it's adding condemnation to our head. And what Paul's acknowledging here is the purpose of the Old Covenant law isn't, isn't, isn't about freedom, it's about condemnation. In addition to that, in the book of Galatians, he says it like this, Galatians 3, 24, so then the law, the reason the law was given, was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might, might be justified by faith. So what makes us righteous? It's not living the law, it's faith. And who's that faith in? Well, John told us, believe in Jesus. In the name of what Christ has done for you. But he says, now, now, that, now that faith has come, we are no longer under what? A guardian, right? Which is the, the law. So you look at, at the Old Testament, the, the purpose of the Old Testament law, not to free, but to condemn. And it's to show us in Galatians 3, it's to show our need for Jesus. It's to help us to recognize as we look at this law, we're like, man, I keep messing up. I, I need something to really rescue me. What's going to rescue me? That was the purpose of the law. It's so that you recognize in law, like I feel condemned. I'm not perfect. What can I do? And now he's saying, now the answer has come by faith. You're no longer under guardian, but now rest in Jesus. Do you see the sufficiency of Christ in this being proclaimed through what the law was intended? Not as freedom, but to show your need for Jesus. Knowing we were condemned... Jesus comes and he looks at the law. He realizes that we aren't perfect, but he is. And so he comes not to abolish the old covenant because God gave that covenant, but rather to fulfill its demands by going to the cross and his perfection and taking all of the punishment of sin upon himself. Jesus came to fulfill it. And look what it says in Hebrews 8.13. And speaking of a new covenant, it's acknowledging now Jesus has brought in a new covenant. It says Jesus makes the first one obsolete. Jesus obliterated. The word can be translated as obliterated. He obliterated the Old Testament law. So do we obey the old covenant? No. I don't wake up in the morning and say, how can I obey 613 laws? There may be things that I do that reflect the old covenant like I haven't murdered anyone, right? Um, but it's not because I wake up in the morning and want to reflect the old covenant. It's because sometimes the new covenant aligns with, with Christ. So in the new covenant, remember what it's about. So what, what do we do now if we don't obey the Old Testament law? Do we just live however we want? <laughs> 
Like people worry about that. What are you going to do when there's no love? And if you don't say you'll obey all these laws of the Old Testament, uh, do you just wake up and just do whatever you want? Do you just, you can just live like hell and Jesus rescues you? Is that really what it's about? And then Paul makes that argument in, in Romans. He says, what shall we do now? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? And he say, may it never be. Remember 1 Corinthians 6, 20, you've been bought with a price. The value of Jesus is it's been given for you. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. And Jesus has pursued you and Jesus wants to know you. So what do we do then in new covenant? Well, John said it for us. We trust in Jesus for the new covenant frees us from the wrath of God. So we're, we're walking in Christ. We're believing in him. We're hoping in him. And then it tells us how to respond in that belief where we lean all our trust is to love others. It's to care for others around us. I mean, God calls us to minister in this world and ministry is not about accomplishing religious law. Ministry is designed for the purpose of reaching hearts of people, which God desires to do. And the way God desires to do that is through his people that are now empowered by his spirit. As a Christian, we don't wake up and follow religious law Rather, what the New Testament says to us now is in in New Covenant, God promises his spirit and this is the command he tells to the believers now. I say, walk by the spirit. He doesn't say wake up and obey law. He says, now rather, here's what you do. Walk by the spirit. This idea of walk literally means be surrendered to how the spirit of God wants to move. Surrender your life to this king that pursued you. Since he is a king, he has a kingdom. You belong to him as a citizen. Now you represent this king as an ambassador. Surrender your life before this king and walk in the spirit of what this king has sent to you by the Holy Spirit that now indwells you. Walk in the spirit. If you want to know what that means to walk in the spirit, I would tell you, read Galatians 5, 16 and on. But look at this. Walk by the spirit and look at this. You will not gratify the desires of your flesh. And now, but in verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, look at this. As a Christian being indwelt by the Spirit, if you are led by the Spirit, look what it says. You are not under the what? Law. Wake up every morning loving God. And I I don't mean God arbitrarily like some just figure that's just, just ambiguous. I mean Jesus. Love Jesus. And in pursuit of that heart, in pursuit of his heart, my heart connecting to his heart, I learned to share what his heart is for this world and which is to love people. I'm not governed by law. I'm walking in the spirit. He even says it like this in Galatians 6 to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know what the law of Christ is? Jesus said it like this, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give unto you. Jesus is giving a new commandment, not because he's adding to the old commandment, but because he's created the new covenant. And the new covenant says, love one another as I have loved you. We bear one another's burdens because we want to fulfill the law of Christ, which is in knowing him, we love others. John recognizes that in that message, the simplicity of what Jesus has done, not the basis of what we do, and the freedom of what Christ gives to us, that people will come along and pervert the teaching of Christ. You can see it in the life of Paul as he ministers in the New Testament. You can see it in the life of Peter. You can even see it in this this epistle written by John. When Gnostics are coming in saying, you need secret knowledge, extra knowledge. There's more to this. And, And John's saying, no, there's not. 
And so he, he follows the idea of 1 John chapter 3 with, with these next words. And this is where it gets a little sobering for us. But he says this. Beloved, talking about the body of Christ. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test the spirits. Now this is freaky. You think about this for a minute. I mean, he's, in terms of talking about a Holy Spirit, in terms of talking about a human spirit, in terms of talking about spiritual forces, there, there are dark forces and there are light forces, and we can be influenced by both. And, and that is kind of freaky to think about, right? Um, how, uh, let me just start like this. Why, why is it so important to test the spirits? I mean, John's saying test the spirits. Let's just ask the question. Why is it so important to test the spirits? Oftentimes when we think about the spirits, like if you think in terms of Satan, in our mind, the way that we like to think about Satan in, in John chapter 10, verse 10, it says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That sounds just like Satan, right? And, and then he juxtaposes that statement with Jesus. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So you're like, okay, What's the kingdom of darkness about? It's about steal, kill, and destroy. What's Jesus about? He's about life abundant, right? And so we think in terms of Satan, we tend to think this way. I don't want darkness. It's evil. Steal, kill, and destroy, right? And you think about what Satan is in our society today. He grows horns. He's really red. He's got this nasty tail. He walks around pitchforks. He's evil. When we see bad things like that, we run, right? But just think about this for a moment. Satan shows up in the Garden of Eden. And I think it's true. Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy, right? Spiritual forces of darkness, they want to still kill and destroy. But Satan shows up, shows up in the Garden of Eden. And, and if you know the story of Garden of Eden, they eat, they eat a piece of fruit. And from that point, all of destruction, all the, all the curse of what we've seen in sin and all of this world was born. But when Satan showed up, did he say, still kill and destroy? Is that how he presented himself? I mean, who's really going to believe that? If Satan shows up this morning and, and, and he wants to influence for bad and he talks to us and is like, everyone go out, still kill and destroy, right? I mean, who's going to be like, man, that sounds like a great idea, right? Let's do this. This, guy, this guy's on to something. No, no one's going to follow that. Like if Satan, if Satan appears before us and he says that, like no one's going to, no one's going to listen to that. It's like, dude, you've got horns. We're not, <laughs> like we need halos if we're going to do anything, right? Like Satan doesn't work that way. When, when Satan showed up to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, he didn't, he didn't come saying still kill and destroy. What did he do? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, all I did was ask a question. He looked at Eve and he said, surely, surely God didn't say not to eat of the tree, did he? Satan didn't come teaching kill, steal, and destroy. You know what Satan did? All he did was twist the truth. Because Satan knows if he can get you to buy into a lie, Destruction happens. That's why John's saying, test the spirits. Spirits don't come with these horns, all these bells and whistles warning you. They come under the deception of something that may look good, but isn't godly. It's like old covenant law. Old covenant law can look good. I mean, there's a lot of good things that God tells people to do. But you know what it completely does? Undermines the sufficiency of Jesus in your life. And while it may look good, it leads the soul to destruction because law will never free your heart. Jesus does. Test the spirits. 
You know, it's probably a more accurate way of looking at Satan. Ezekiel 28, in describing Satan, just think about this, how Eve would have seen Satan. It says, you are the signet of perfection, talking about Satan, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Does that sound like pitchfork? Even in the New Testament, it says in 2 Corinthians eleven four, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so what John is saying to us when he says, test the spirits, is the deception of spirits is that spiritual feeling, can, can, it can feel good and still not be of God. It can look good, but completely hate God. I've told us this before, but Satan has no problem with good. The problems with God. Even if you, if you read the mission statement, if you look on your phone, what's the mission statement of the satanic temple? It's to do good to all men. They've got no problem with good. It's with God. Because Satan understands it's God that sets you free. And so John is looking at the the simplicity of what the message is because of what Jesus has done for you by the extravagance of his grace. And he's saying to us, look, don't let go of this message because the temptation in your life is to gravitate towards other things and try to add to it. But no, the hope of your heart is just to rest in the goodness of what Jesus has done. And so rather than picture Satan like this one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, it's to recognize uh, that Satan comes uh, deceiving us as an angel of light. And so testing the spirits are important. It's to say truth matters, especially when you're on the receiving end of a lie. Because if Satan can just twist the truth, he can bring destruction to your soul doesn't start with kill, steal, and destroy. He starts with a lie and just lets the destruction happen. So how do you test the spirits? When you look in verse one, I, I think um, people come to this verse and really they, they sometimes will react two different ways. You'll either go into fight or flight mode. <laughs> um, flight mode is, is where you get paranoid and, and I don't want you to look at this verse and be like, oh my gosh, there's these spirits everywhere. We're just, ah, you freak out about it, right? Like, like, like verse four to six is for you if, if, that ver- if this verse makes you paranoid, okay? We'll look at it in a minute. But don't get paranoid. But like I say, one of, my, one of the greatest pains in ministry uh, is also really quickly aligned with one of the greatest joys in ministry. One of the greatest pains is, is seeing people lost because they really don't know how to test the spirits or they've been lied to in their lives. But one of the greatest joys is directing them to the truth that sets them free. Um, and I, I want us rather than be paranoid to build our confidence in what John says helps us test these spirits and to walk confidently in that. So how do we test these spirits? It's a good question, but, but just think about this. Don't, don't be paranoid. Don't, don't go into flight mode. And, and the other thing is don't go into fight mode and, and fight mode are people that just become permanent heresy hunters where they act like arrogant critics and just blast heretics all day, like they feel like their whole purpose is to seek and destroy, find people that, that don't agree with Jesus and just annihilate them you know, like from this truth. And, and I don't think God wants us to do that either. I, I don't think that God calls us to be critical, but rather what this verse calls you to do is to think critically. Does that make sense? So don't be critical. No one wants to be around that. But, but do think critically. This is important. Truth, truth sets us free. Uh, I want us to encourage us to see truth as important and to show people what truth is. I, I want to be discerning, humble, godly, 
servants of the Lord. So it's not about it's not about being paranoid and flight or being heresy hunters and, and fighting. It's about recognizing there is light and there is darkness. And I want to be aware of that. And I want people to know the truth of Christ that sets them free. So how, how do you test the spirits? This idea of, of test, this idea of test means to try, um, to, to examine, to prove how do we prove these spirits? How do we examine these spirits or, or test them? And so the question we need to answer then is, what is the standard by which we measure it? Like you ever take a test in life? You go to grade school, you have a test. Everyone takes a test. You turn your test in. Teacher's got an answer sheet. That answer sheet becomes the standard to determine, did you get an A or did you flunk the class, right? So what, what is the standard to determine if something is true or not true? And here's the unfortunate part of our society. In our country, what we've taught ourselves is that humanity is the highest standard of life. And so we base everything on your personal experience. You, you become the litmus test for truth. It's like this Oprah Winfrey style where she'll ask the question, what is your truth? And, and honestly, that's not what she, she should rather ask, what is your experience? Because, because truthfully, you are not the determiner of truth. Truth existed before you existed and truth's going to continue to exist after you're going. Truth is bigger than you. You, you aren't the standard for what determines truth. Now you can experience truth, but you never establish truth. And in fact, just, just by way of thinking of that, I, I would just say, you know, there's a lot of good people that believe a lot of things sincerely and they're sincerely wrong. <laughs> and so just looking within yourself for the source of truth, well, there are spirits that can deceive you. How in the world do you know if you, you're being deceived? If I just take an example, two people, two types of people that I love, that I would disagree with, I would say, look, there, there's, there's Hinduism and there's Islam, right? Both of them make a proclamation about God. Both of them can say, I had these wonderful internal experiences and this is my truth. But they can't both be right because they both t- teach about a different God. They can both be wrong, but they can't both be right. And so when you have two people of different religious views saying, I, you know, I believe this is true, I believe this is true, and this has been my experience, my personal experience and my truth, and the other person's like, this has been my personal experience and truth, how do you determine who's right and wrong if the basis for the standard of truth is within yourself? Because they can't both be right. They're teaching about two different gods. And so it's to indicate for us the standard to examine which one's true isn't found within them, but outside of them. There's got to be a place that you come to, an answer sheet that examines outside of all of us that we can look at together and say, look, these guys are both making the proclamation. One of them here has got to be crazy. Maybe both. Who's, who's right? Who's wrong? Well, you can love them in their incorrectness. But they can't both be true. So the standard of truth isn't found within us. Now, I hope you enjoy your journey with the Lord, but the standard of truth isn't found within us. I mean, there's a lot of people that believe things and believe wrong, and now because of that, the prisons are full with them, right? Like, with your whole heart, you can believe something, and then we have a standard of law that says, well, you can believe that all, but it's wrong, right? It is wrong. And so now, let's go to jail for this. There's a standard for that. And using yourself as a basis of truth, here, here's the scary part where that can go. Um, Nazi Germany. When you start to use humanity as the basis for determining what's right and wrong, eventually you get to a place where might makes right. It's not about what's true anymore. It's whoever screams the loudest, fights the hardest, and wins the battle. It has nothing to do with truth. And might makes right. 
And in the end, what happens in the passivity of other people that might be true? Corruption. That's things like that birth Nazi Germany. Might makes right. And so the, the point is, I can believe sincerely. Like I can believe right now when I leave today, I've got a helicopter outside that's gonna take me away. Reality is when I walk out, I got my same dinky car, right? Like you can believe things, but that doesn't make them true. So how, how do you determine what's true? Well, the standard of truth is outside you and me. And what can we look at to determine what's true? Well, John says that. He tells us in, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. By this, you know the spirit of God. So you want to test the spirits? Here's where you find the spirit of God, the spirit that you want to pursue. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard has come, uh, was coming and now in the world already. So what John is saying is, look, the foundational standard for Christianity is built on Jesus, on Christ. That's why we call it Christianity. Right? Uh, we can examine Jesus to see if Jesus is who he claims to be. But the standard in this for us is Jesus. And in John's day, remember what? They're combating in Gnosticism. They think the world is spiritual and evil and the evil's bad and the spiritual's good. And for, since Jesus was good, he never really came physically. He only came spiritually. And John says, that's baloney. Jesus had to come physically. He had to be here physically because he had to die for you physically to pay for your sins physically. And so if you don't believe that Jesus came, you're undermining what Jesus did. And so here's the test. Jesus. It's the identity of Jesus. Jesus said it like this. As a standard of truth, John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the what? Truth. I am the life. Jesus tells us he is the way to pursue. He is truth itself. He is life itself. It's not that he just gives life. It is he is the sustainer and upholder of life. I mean, what, what kind of person calls himself the truth? What kind of man calls himself the truth? Unless he's more than just a man. And so what John is establishing for us is, is, is Jesus is that, that standard. And so we think about the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The most important question you can answer in Christianity because this is everything that you're believing in. This is what you rest your life on. This is what gives you hope. This is where you say, this is why my life is sufficient and not religion, but in Christ. It's because of the identity of Jesus. Jesus is eternal creator God who made everything physical and spiritual, part of the triunity of God. We rebelled against him. He pursued us. He was born of a virgin, came in the flesh, died on the cross, resurrected the third day. He said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Jesus today in his resurrection, ruling on the right hand of the father, promises in that ruling and reigning, he will return for us one day. That is the clarity of Christ, which we rest in. That is the litmus test to examine if what someone is proclaiming is true or not. John wants us to rest in the identity and standard that is Jesus. And then John builds from there. He says this, verses four to six. Let me just read verse six. He says, I will come back to the other ones. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I'm gonna use this word us. I think he's representing the church as a whole and then I think more specifically the apostolic teaching because that's what the church obeys. But you remember in Jude verse three, it tells us in, in the book of Jude, it's only got one chapter, verse three, 
that the faith, the faith, not your faith, but the faith was once for all handed down to the saints. So it's saying what is our faith is concluded and wrapped up in the identity of Jesus. There's no more that needs to be added to scripture. Everything that we believe and live in is in Christ. So the faith has been handed to us. And so that's why John in this passage is able to say, look, you need to listen to what we have taught. Listen to us and what we have taught. So the standard, what John is saying is really, he's saying it's God's word. Listen to what the apostolic teaching has brought to us because this is where we rest. So when you think about what Jesus, the idea of Jesus, Jesus being the standard, we test the spirits, we examine according to what Christ, who Christ is in accordance to God's word. God's word records for us the identity of who Jesus is. Um, Jesus prayed for you in John chapter 17. And in his prayer... As God's people, he says this in verse 17 of chapter 17 of John. He says, sanctify them in truth. Your word, God, is truth. The standard, God's word. What what John is saying in this story for us is that for us to examine the Spirit's to look at the identity of Jesus and the truth which is proclaimed about Jesus in God's word. And then you'll know if what you're being taught is of the spirit of God or not. I know for some of us, and I have no, no problem with this, some of us you might be hearing me say, Jesus is a standard, God's word is a standard. You're thinking, well, I'm glad that's the standard, but how can I be confident in Jesus and how can I be confident in his word? And I tell you, this morning, um, I don't have time to dive into all of that. But I think if that foundation is secure and you can get to a place where you see that foundation is secure, you can use this as the basis in your life to rest in. And John wants us to recognize that. And then, so just in case you might be paranoid about the idea of spirits and the fact that there's dark spirits and light spirits and you might want to build a bunker and hide in that, John writes verse four to six for you, right? He says this, little children, you're from God and you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Those spirits have no power over you. Like people read verses like 1 John chapter 4 verse 1 and freak out and say things like, I see spirits. Like, and then they just go in this voodoo mode and they're, they're afraid of everything. But look, um, it, uh, well, I'm not going to argue whether or not that happens to you. But, but I, I'll just say this. People just get weird over spiritual things sometimes. But look, regardless, they don't have anything over you. You belong to Jesus and you belong to Jesus. Um, and greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, which means what God has called you to in this world, you can accomplish because God's power is with you. The same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave rests in God's people. We're not called to walk in fear. And in verse five, he says like this, they're from the world, talking about people that don't follow Jesus. They're from the world. Therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. Um, don't be shocked when the world disagrees with you. I mean, in fact, if you follow Jesus, these people murdered Jesus. <laughs> like you're following a guy who was, who was murdered and all of his immediate followers were murdered. So if the world doesn't like you for following Jesus, just don't be shocked by that. They're, they operate by a different agenda, right? But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. In verse six, we are from God. Whoever, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of, of error. Um, here's what he's saying in the end. Here's what your goals should be. Just know God. 
You don't need to worry about all the negative, dark stuff if you just make it one goal. It's what Paul did in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Know God. I want to know God. To know him and his spirit in, in my life and to make him, him known. Christianity is about believing in the truth of Jesus. Trusting in that. Resting in that foundation of his identity. And in seeing his love in pursuit of our lives. Giving our heart back to this king who has given his heart to you. To then respond by the loving those around us because that's who Jesus loves. Christianity is summarized very easily. Love God, love others. And the reality is, is that that message in its simplicity is, is it's simple in its message because of the enormity of God's grace that's been poured out for you. But don't undermine that grace by adding to what Jesus has done because adding anything to it diminishes its perfection and beauty. Embrace it. Because what Satan desires to do is to get you to believe a lie. Yes, his motive is to still kill and destroy, but he understands he doesn't have to do that. All he has to do is twist the truth and allow destruction to happen. But if we can walk in the truth, it brings our souls freedom. So John's encouragement for us is rather than be afraid of the spiritual world, understand that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world and that God calls you to test the spirits by holding to the standard of what is truth and that found in Christ and in his word. And in so doing, when you wake up tomorrow, you don't wake up asking, what are the laws I obey? But rather you surrender yourself to his leading and you walk in his spirit. And walking in the spirit, you're free from the law. But in that spirit, the Bible tells us there is love, there is joy, there is peace, there is patience, there is kindness. And when you surrender your life to the goodness of this God, you allow that that Lord to work through you. And in working through you, he impacts hearts in this world. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.